This is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust. I'm Chris Fitch. This is our third season. I know, I can't believe it either. Even the office called it a day after two seasons and they won a sack full of BAFTAs. But we're not in it for the awards, which is probably just as well. Instead, in season three of Vulnerability Matters, people, not plaudits or perspex, are our focus. And throughout this season, you'll be hearing from people who make you think about vulnerability in a completely different way. People will leave you a decidedly new perspective and tool set and people so interesting, you will rush to connect with them on X slash Twitter, Mastodon, or even Wolf. There's a nice little US office reference for you. And today, we are very lucky indeed to have just such a person on the podcast. Sarah Stevenson-Hunter is a fellow of the Royal Society of Art, is Joint Head of Equality and Diversity at the University of Oxford, and is a co-founder of the Simply Equality Advisory Company. And in this latter role in particular, Sarah helps firms to work, among other things, more effectively with their trans customers. Now, currently around 0.3% of the UK population, according to the latest census, identifies having a different gender identity to their sex registered at birth. However, despite being a small minority, trans people represent a group of customers who firms are sometimes very unsure about how best to engage with, and where wider media and political discussions often make it much harder for everyone involved to have a practical discussion. So as a trans woman herself, although my conversation with Sarah did touch on the effects of this wider debate on trans people, we spent more time focusing on two things, the practical changes firms might introduce to better work with their trans customers, and Sarah's own experience, good and bad, with a range of essential service firms. Hello, Sarah. Thank you very, very much for doing this. Uh, what, where are you today, and uh, what are you, what are you up to? Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Gosh, where am I today? So I'm sat in my home office in sunny Oxford. It is sunny. Um, I'm in quite a rural, rural part of Oxfordshire, a place called Kidlington. So you, you, you've got this role at uh, Simply Equality and the yep. University of Oxford. Yep working in diversity uh, and inequality but taking a slightly longer view and without Mm -hmm. praying too much I don't want to be accused of being the town prior again it's a label that's that's, uh, very hard to shake off I wonder if you just tell us a bit about your 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 transition so yes so I I came out as trans 10 years ago 2013 at the ripe old age of 42 It, it was a it was a it was a difficult decision at that point I was married I had three children, sort of ages five, eight, and 11, uh, sorry, 13. And I knew that for me, transition was something I had to do. It it may sound selfish to some. I've just, you know, know, I was married and everything, and I um, had a good life. But there was just this thing in the back of my mind that actually wasn't even the back of my mind it had been brought to the forefront of my mind that I just knew I wasn't happy with who I was um I I call it my tidal wave moment a few years prior to that I'd lost my father through lung cancer and then also I'd lost all my remaining vision 
because um, I am also um, blind. So those, those two things came together and brought me to a point in life where I was like, look, this, this thing that I've been running from, these feelings about my gender identity and, and that I've, I've tried to run from, I just can't run anymore. It was making me ill, mentally ill. I had quite regular thoughts of suicide, of, well, if I can't be me, then what's the point of living? And again, I know to your listeners that might sound selfish, but all I can say is it wasn't an easy decision. So 2013 was the point at which I came out as trans, went through the, well, started to go through the UK-based social and medical transition process. And that, that was a slow process. But that's where I was and that's who I am. So I've been Sarah for, my gosh, it'll be 10 years this November. And what are the the, the, the steps in transitioning? Because um, people be people are familiar now with um, the term trans woman, trans man. Mm-hmm. But that whole process is a long process, isn't it? I mean... If you if you read some parts of the media, uh, you'd think that you just wake up and think, I tell you what, today I fancy changing my gender. Contrary to popular belief, it is not that easy. So for me, the, the, the process was I went to my local GP and luckily they were quite supportive, open. I talked about how I was feeling. They made a referral to a gender clinic. Once you get the referral, however, you have to wait for your first appointment. Now, this was 10 years ago. I was lucky I only waited, what would that be, about four or five months for my first appointment. You have a series of three appointments and you very much are talking to them about how you feel about your body. Um, They're checking whether you've got any other mental illnesses or things that might be contributing to how you feel. You know, it's quite a thorough process. I remember getting handed a 50-page questionnaire that was quite intrusive about my, my childhood, early sexual experiences, how I felt about my body. So it, it is a very thorough process. And then once you are through that process, you have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, if, if the psychologist believe that's the case. And then that's not the end. And then you have to wait a longer period to then be prescribed hormones, if that's what you choose to do, because it's worth saying that not everybody who is trans goes through, if you like, a linear process. For me, I did. I went to see the gender clinic. I began my social transition, as in changing my name, dressing differently, different documentation. Then after about two years, I got a referral for gender-affirming surgery, and I had that in October 2016. So for me, the process began April 2013, and in October 2016. So it's a lengthy process. Uh, it's, it's a lengthy, tortuous, painful, difficult process that I would say, you know, nobody does it lightly. I lost a lot. My marriage broke down. Relations with my children were tricky. They 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 have repaired now. Um, I was lucky in the workplace that I was working for a good employer, but I know lots of trans people who are get illegal to be sacked, but things are made very difficult for them at work. They lose links with family, friends, everything. Hmm. And while you've got all of this going on you said mm-hmm. about the um so the intrusive medical side of it um yep. the process that you went through with with surgery got a lot going on um mm-hmm. living living as a woman 
yep. as, as well. You've then got all of the services that uh, surround us. Uh, the oh, the admin, services. honestly, yeah. the admin of the live okay. admin, Chris. It's just, <laughs> you know, it's okay. Those of you, those of your listeners who may have got married or changed a name for other reasons, you'll, you'll have some familiar, familiarity with it. But literally, you know, when you transition, change your name, it's literally, you know, passport, national insurance, driver license, um, yeah, your bank, your insurance company, everything. That's this whole process that you have to go through, which, which, as you said, you're doing it at a time when you're already dealing with a lot and you're already feeling vulnerable about how are people going to receive you, what are people's attitudes going to be. Um, so, yeah, it is a very, very tricky time. Mm. So the, look, looking at the name change element, let's start mm-hmm. there and the, the experience of being a trans customer. How hard is it to go? What do you need to do to change your name with your bank or your energy I mean, look company? At, luckily, there is there is there is good advice out, out there online and lots of companies um, do seem to have guidance. Although the thing I found is that a company might have guidance on, you know, how does a trans customer change their name? As is the case with lots of guidance, it very much depends on the people on the branch or on the helpline, understanding what a company's guidance and policy is. Um, I and others in the trans community have a mixed experience. Um, Bankwise, I was with NatWest at the time. I had a really great person that I took in my documentation. At that stage, I'd managed to get a new passport. Um, So I took that in. But there were others who, you know, they don't have a passport. Mm -hmm. And and it's a bit of like, well, when do you get the passport? And again, it's not an easy process. It costs money. So it is a minefield. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I had a real mix of good and bad. And with, with, with firms, you're saying uh, it can be very inconsistent, whether they know, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, what they know the law or the policy. Does that mean were you always consistently called by your new name? Oh, and God, Crofner? no. God, oh, no. no. Um, the whole thing of the name, whether it's, whether it's a, you know, I would have letters come to my new name. I would have letters come st- still come to my what gets called dead name, my old name. Um, one of my credit cards... In fact, even now, I think just because I, I, I just I couldn't, I couldn't be bothered to change it, and it wasn't that important. But every now and then, you'd get a letter addressed to Mister mm. X Stevenson Hunter, and it might seem like a small thing, but it's incredibly triggering. And also, you know, if you've moved on, perhaps you're living in shared housing, or your family mm. doesn't know. You know, it can be a bit like, well, why is there any? Why is there a letter come to X and why is there a mm. letter come to Sarah? You know, so mm. it can be confusing. Um, and I think, you know, I've heard of trans people literally years after, you'll still get a rogue letter or email that comes to the dead name, mm. and it, it is just incredibly problematic and very upsetting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, um, mm-hmm. So, this, so, so one of the things that maybe our listeners um, should be doing is. Uh, just checking what is what is the policy what's the process and is it is it legally up to date because it seems that maybe some of them are using a slightly different uh processes what what about 
phone calls, uh, experience of speaking to firms over the phone and firms maybe thinking your voice doesn't match what's recorded on their systems. Did you, did you have I any mean, experiences this, there? This is particularly an issue for trans women. I know trans men, those who've been born female at birth or transitioned to male, they, they, they start taking male hormones and unlike trans women, male hormones can lower the voice to get a deeper pitch. And so I know they find it a lot easier, but lots of trans women, honestly, if we could avoid using the phone, certainly in the early stages, we would. Mm. Um, yes, you can have voice coaching. I've had some of it, but it's, it's, it's easy. It's not always available. So, yeah, I, I, I have had and I still do on occasions. You ring up, you give your name and you can tell there's that pause where they're thinking, mm. oh, OK, no, sorry, what did you say your name was? Yes, it's Sarah, S-A-R-A-H. Oh, thank you, sir. It's like, you haven't been listening, have you? (laughs) And look, I get it. I get it. We live in a world where we have certain expectations of how men and women sound. And I get it that certainly when you're dealing with financial services, you've got to be careful about fraud. I get it. Mm. But there are ways you can do that. There are ways you can ask questions. Um, I shouldn't make it gendered, but I'm going to. I tend mm. to find if I'm speaking to a female um, call center operative, they're generally less likely to misgender me. Or if they do, they're like, oh, I do apologize. And from that point on, they correct themselves. Um, again, this is just an observation. I'm not making any um, truck by it, but I also found that with those financial institutions that have non-UK call centers, mm. perhaps because of, you know, some cultural issues, language issues, you are more prone to get misgendered by the voice. Mm. And I, I have had it, I have had some real difficulties with, um, you know, if, if somebody is using your card fraudulently and then you're trying to prove that you're who you are and then it, honestly it just mm. gets... It's just a whole extra load of stress <laughs> that we could all do without. Absolutely, and you're you're saying that the best thing to do if you misgender is just um just apologise and just move on. You know, it's, just say, it, oh, look, I'm really mistakes. sorry. Yeah, I'm really sorry. Um, thank you, Sarah. Thank you for telling me. Um, yeah, move on. Don't make yeah. a big deal of it. So it's um, so we've we covered um phone. We covered uh changing name. I going into branch physical premises um like a meter reader coming to your door uh do they still do that meter readers coming to your door it's kind of it's um um, come on yeah i'm living in a 1980s world it's um when you meet what kind of reaction are you getting there what kind of good practice you're encountering maybe without mentioning names what's what's not Mm -hmm. been so good i think it's really interesting that on the one hand, you know, it's great that we've got a lot of online and everything that, that has its own challenges. Um, sometimes it's just really good to go on a branch and speak to somebody. Um, but again, that can be a really, really nerve wracking process. As I mentioned, when I first transitioned, um, the branch I went to, they were really great. Um, they just accepted me for who I was. but It can be such a mixed bag. Generally being okay in person. Um, 
but again, I know other people, um, and particularly those those people that you know do transition, but again, they don't necessarily present in a gender typical way. Mm. It can really, it can really cause problems, and that's when you can get asked a bit more intrusive questions about, oh, have you got an ID with you, or mm. anything else of that nature. Absolutely. We just, um, I mean, I could talk about this with you for, for, for hours, um, but it's, uh, maybe I will. We'll keep you here. <laughs> well, another it's, uh, time. <laughs> it's kind of just um, a last a last few questions. Mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier that you, you understand the position of banks, essential service firms, when they do have to do things in a certain way. I was wondering about what's the feeling amongst um, such trans people about when you apply for a new product or service? I'm thinking here maybe uh, insurance or pension products or critical illness or mortgage payment cover where you you need to disclose your sex at birth when applying for that because the firm will use that to calculate risk and insurance premiums is it can that be grating or you just get it it's you, understand. you probably got it for my you got it for my response i think it can be grating i mm. think yeah if you're talking about you know life insurance pension cover critical illness i think there is an understanding that obviously you know you will be profiled based on your sex of birth. Um, so if that was me, I'd be like, okay, okay, yes, I, I will answer mail there, but that'll probably be the only, the only occasion I will do it when I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, I can see why there may be a valid business-related reason mm -hmm. why I need to disclose that. Because ordinarily, mm -hmm. you know, I will say female because I'm one of the few trans people that's got a gender recognition certificate. I have a new passport, sorry, a new birth certificate that says female on it. So in every other regard, mm. I will say female. Um, but the last thing I'd want to do is, you know, have life insurance, something bad happens, and then the company's like, oh, well, you didn't disclose your sex at birth properly, therefore we're going to invalidate your claim that's the mm. last thing i'd want to happen sarah that was really helpful if if i wanted to find out more about you sarah and about simply equality do tell us about that where can i find out more about you so yeah linkedin go to linkedin if you look for sarah stevenson hunter also simplyequality.com. so yeah that simply equality is is well we're running it as a social enterprise we're break, seeking to break down barriers for disabled and lgbtq plus people yeah LinkedIn website, Twitter, and is there a sort a site or a resource that you know uh, our listeners might learn just a bit more generally about the the lives of trans men and women, uh, where they can educate themselves a bit more? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of resources out there. There is the Simply Equality podcast, which you'll find details of on the Simply Equality website. But there are other organisations like Stonewall. Stonewall is Europe's largest campaigning and advocacy group for LGBTQ plus people. So there's them. There's also um, a UK-based organization called Transactual. I was one of the early founders of that, and it very much focuses on the experiences of trans people in healthcare, the press, and the wider world. Thank you very much, Sarah. That was wonderful. And that was Sarah Stevenson Hunter. Do make sure you look her up. 
That's about it for today, friends. But before you disappear back into your own worlds of vice and decadence, I wanted to shout whoa and remind you about three small things. First, our next episode of Vulnerability Matters features our very own Phil King from the Money Vice Trust, aka the Data Goblin. Phil will be spilling the beans on the very biggest themes, fears and challenges that essential service firms have reported in the Money Vice Trust annual survey on consumer vulnerability. So do tune in and you can hear that right now, actually, as it's just been released. Second, in the episodes that follow, we have some further treats for you. I know we're, we're too generous, including fascinating conversations with TV psychologist, author and all-round brain box Paul Davies on the uh, psychology of consumer vulnerability. And also with Dr. Elizabeth Blakelock, the LinkedIn behemoth of vulnerability, about working with consumers living with chronic pain. So do keep a lookout for those in the next couple of weeks. And thirdly, and definitely least importantly, um, you can win a new and exclusive Vulnerability Matters mug. Yes, we're branching out into merch. There, there goes my pension. It goes about saying they're not available in the shops, mainly for safety and legal reasons, but not to let dwell on that. And all you need to do to win one is send me a message on LinkedIn. Look me up, Chris Fitch, or Twitter, where I am at Chris underscore Fitch. And let me know what you thought about today's discussion with Sarah. The best comment wins the mug. Okay, that's it. What a start. Clearly, with this opening to season three of Vulnerability Matters, we've raised the bar ridiculously high for the rest of the season. But I'm pleased to say that just like Afro Man, it will just get higher and higher. So until next time, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thank you for remembering that Vulnerability Matters.